Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Jordan. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing... I'm I'm all right. Look, I'm I'm probably uh, just on the fringe of a cold. Maybe Uh, that's developing. So, you know, I'll have to sanitise the surfaces uh, extra well once I get out of here. But other than that, I'm fine. It was actually nice seeing the sun. You know, coming into the studio this morning again. Oh, yeah, that's right, because of all the t- the clocks are going, uh, returning to normal. Yeah. I was actually yeah. thinking that because I ride my bike and uh, and I've had to get up early to do a variety of things, how the actual sense of the day and the cool in the morning and all those things returning to uh, a sense of reality again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and the coldness, uh, listener, you can't see it, but I've got some disgusting Ugg boots currently on <laughs> because it is it is coming back into uh, that, that, that wintry time of the year. But, you know, nip, the, these shoes are the kind of... I'm, I'm just not putting up with sneakers today. I need something a bit warmer. <laughs> there was fabulous news about McCormick's. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I've been chasing this up for the past, you know, five or six weeks, as um, uh, long-standing listeners will know, um, that the McCormick strike down in Clayton South, um, out the front of McCormick's Foods, which uh, has been led by the United Workers United Workers Union, has um, found a resolution, and they actually managed to get a a, a pretty good offer out of the company. Um, so the uh, the UWU and its members. Um, Sorry, I should say the UWU members voted to accept this new offer from the company directly. Um, and just to recap as well, for the past five years, McCormick's Foods has offered no pay rise. So 0% pay rise. And this culmination of six weeks on strike, uh, McCormick's workers have managed to retain all existing conditions. Yeah, and one of the things that was problematic oh, yeah. was that, that they wanted it, they work four days a week and they wanted them to go to five days a week without yep. any return. Yep, absolutely. And they were already working five days a week. So the reality, I mean, they were coming in for five days a week. The reality was actually a cut to the penalty rate that would have applied on a Friday. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the offer includes um, retaining all previous conditions, the company uh, would have wanted to remove. So that means they still get their four-day week, which is excellent. Um, they get a 9% pay rise across three years, which is excellent. Um, so, you know, that's going to be well above the marker for wages in particular, um, or at least, you know, on 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 par with um, inflationary measures in particular. Um, we'll have to see how COVID plays out in terms of, you know, where that's going to go. But 3% across, you know, year on year is... Um, well, they were being offered 1%. Secure. 
Yes, and before that they had zero. So yeah, uh, yeah it's a great win. And there's also a five thousand dollar sign-on bonus. So um, that's going to be a, a really nice, you know, um, it, it's just a nice package. And it's great to see that they've actually secured some proper pay rises. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a great little win. In particular, McCormick's profiteered so much through the pandemic because they are an international company. Um, they Their workers still came in during the pandemic. Um, but luckily, the workers have drawn a line in the sand. And after six weeks on strike, um, you know, student support coming out, all of the cooks and the cleaners uh, for, the, for the actual picket line, all of the banner material, every single shred of effort that went into it is testament to the success of unions. Yeah, at the bravo, end of the day. Bravo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you, you've got also some um, other news as well uh, uh, about uh, how well the uh, big end of town did out of COVID. Yes, absolutely. So if, if you... Uh, are partial to reading Murdoch publications, um, you may have encountered the list, which is released via The Australian, and it's this glossy magazine, um, which, uh, are, are we talking about it now, or should yeah, we, should yeah, we come back? It. Oh, yeah, all right, sure. So this uh, Murdoch publication essentially rattles off the top 250 most wealthy individuals in Australia. Now, um, if you'd like to play along at home, um, the greatest increases in wealth overall for the people on this list were among those in iron ore mining, cardboard box making, food delivery services, and tech companies. And to give you an idea surprise, as well, surprise. yeah, these, oh, these increases would have been from April last year to March of this year. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is that with the figures in, it shows that uh, uh, millionaire, billionaire class across the world have done very well out of COVID, but apparently Australian billionaires have done, done it so much better. Yeah, absolutely. So if you just look at the top 250 in this list, the combined wealth of them is 470 billion, right? You should compare that against Australia's health investment. That is, you know, staggering levels of wealth by comparison. Um, that is up from 377 billion last year. So the top 250 broadly have all had their wealth increase by a quarter, right? 25% of what is already an exorbitant level of wealth. That is egregious beyond egregious. It is greedy and gluttonous. Um, in any case, I digress. The um, so really the two richest. Yeah, I was who, I was who, talking about this with you earlier. Um, the two richest were both in the natural resources sector. Um, there was Gina Reinhart, closely followed by Andrew Forrest, and uh, the prime attribution for that was the rise in iron ore prices, um, almost. You know, almost totally. And just because they were also able to continue exporting it to China. So um, Gina Reinhart in particular, her wealth increased by $20 billion just in the last year alone. And that is up from $16 billion last year. So she's more than doubled an exorbitant array of wealth and assets. Um, meanwhile, Andrew Forrest, um, who's chair of Fortescue Medical Group, he similarly doubled his wealth, and it was from about $14 billion to $29 billion. Now, This is the same bloke who is uh, constantly putting his ore in around 
uh, uh, social security uh, elements within the Australian yep. uh, landscape, yep. as if this, uh, as if we're back in the 18th century, and yep. and you've got to have someone who's raking it in, uh, organising a charity fund for the. Uh, a third of the population of Australia. Yeah. Outrageous stuff. Pretty rotten stuff. And even better, the list goes on to actually showcase the extravagant lifestyles of these rich and famous. There is this multi-billionaire real estate developer, um, Harry Tri- uh, Trigaboff. Um, hopefully I'll get the pronunciation of that right. Um, he boasts within this magazine that he swims 20 laps of breaststroke daily at the ripe old age of 88. Okay, good on you. Uh, But when the magazine asked him to uh, get a photo of him swimming in this pool, his response was, oh, which pool? I have three swimming pools at my house. And uh, the magazine goes into this. It actually explores this. And it says, quote, Despite already having two pools, Trigoboff built a special indoor pool and a bubbling spa in the next-door neighbor's house after adding it to his Vaucluse waterfront compound. There was also a lush Mediterranean garden, which includes a pond full of ten sizable carp, as well as a resident water dragon. Wow. I wish I had that in my, you know, low-quality apartment or, you know, a dishwasher. (laughs) Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, we went off to uh, the uh, Marxist conference over the Easter period Mm. and uh, there were some fabulous talks, very interesting. And uh, you, in particular, went on Sunday, Jordan, and uh, brought brought us back a, a, a speech done by the uh, fabulous Cath uh, Larkin. Yes, I, I went out on mission for 3CR, and um, it was actually really enjoyable. I'd never been to Marxism conference before, and um, so it was really fascinating. Meat Market's an excellent venue. Um, after um, recording one particular talk, which will um, you know you'll be able to hear through the week on 3CR, I went to the yellow room where Kath Larkin was delivering a talk um, about the Cortex strike. And just briefly, if you're not familiar with it, it was in 1981, so just before the accord kicked off, where a group of largely women and especially migrant women in what is a, you know closer to a jail than a sweatshop of this garment textile corporation decided that they'd had enough. That was the gist of it. So Kath gives this excellent retelling and uh, we'll just get straight into it, I suppose. Thank you. Um, So this year marks the 40th anniversary of the Cortex textile factory strike in Brunswick, Melbourne. A strike led by migrant women who fearlessly beat back paid thugs 
police using batons with nothing more than their shoes and solidarity. Cortex was a sweatshop with extremely low wages, a so-called bonus system, which really was just a way to speed up production uh, and an excuse to fire people who didn't uh, meet unrealistic targets. They experienced daily degradation with time toilet breaks, racist and abusive managers and supervisors, many of whom were women, uh, by the way. Uh, They only had one 10-minute tea break, no canteen, uh, which forced uh, workers to eat and smoke in the toilets. One striker described the conditions as being more akin to a, fact, uh, to a jail than a factory. But for just over a week in December in 1981, these very same women outwitted and outsmarted uh, not only their bosses but also union organisers uh, and as a result they won a significant pay rise, an additional holiday and improvements to their working conditions. Not only that, but they smashed through sexist and racist stereotypes and in the course of the struggle transformed themselves. They went back to work with their heads held high uh, and managers put on notice. Uh, Some of the women went on to be involved in a whole series of other strikes and picket lines uh, and demonstrations over following years. I'm really excited to get to share this really wonderful history uh, with you all. Researching this talk uh, was such an inspiring reminder about the power of the working class and their ability to challenge oppression. I want to thank, actually, all of the workers in the Cortex strike. Their courageous fight not only uh, won them better conditions, but it stands as a testament to our power today if only the unions will use it. Migrant workers are often talked about as mere victims, but the Australian labour movement is full of stories of migrant workers giving the establishment a bloody nose. Um, These these battles have never just been to the benefit of migrants alone, but have actually lifted the entire working class as part of the broader struggle. And, of course, that tradition continues in many ways today. Um, I've been extremely proud and honoured to stand on picket lines all around Melbourne uh, with workers from all over the world. Um, And, of course, yesterday, just in here, we had heard stories from migrant farm workers who I think are doing some of the most uh, significant uh, industrial organising at the moment. In particular, I'd like to thank uh, Bari Acklin, Bari was a participant in the Cortex strike and is also the grandmother to our comrade Ravan. Um, (laughs) Ravan sat down and interviewed his grandmother, this great unsung working class hero, uh, and translated her answers into English for me because unlike uh, many of the women in the strike, I unfortunately only speak one language. Uh, So I'll be drawing a lot um, on her experience from the strike in this story. Um, The only other account, um, and I dare say actually that no one would really know anything about this uh, strike today if it weren't for Sandra Bloodworth, who's also here today. (laughs) At the time of the strike, uh, Sandra was a young organiser with the International Socialists. The IS were virtually the only people who thought this story was worth telling. Uh, In many ways, it's not surprising given that this was a strike against their own union officials, that the union doesn't particularly record this history. The only other account that I could find was a very brief reference uh, to it by a strike participant in a migrant uh, workers' newspaper at the time. Um, So this is their story. On Friday the 27th of November, there was to be a union meeting at the Cortex factory to discuss a campaign for a $25 an hour pay rise. 
When the officials from the union didn't even bother to show up, the women walked out and decided to set up a picket the following Monday. On Monday morning, about 300 workers picketed the factory. They successfully stopped trucks and marched to another nearby factory and brought more workers out on strike with them. No doubt as the women stood their ground against that first truck that rolled up to the picket line, they had some apprehension, but that was quickly to change, um, which Sandra explains uh, in this podcast. And the experience of seeing them, the first trucks that came that they were trying to stop going in, the trucks that were, or TWU, the transport workers, they'd been winning pay rises and things, and... uh, we said to them, go up and talk to the drivers, you know, explain why, why this is a picket, they can't go in. And when they did the truck, this huge truck in this little street in Brunswick coming up to the factory and he says, oh, no worries, mate, and turns the truck around and the women just like the, the level of confidence just skyrocketed and people were... Um, singing and dancing and, you know, strengthening the pickets. And and so from then on, it was obvious that this was going to be a fight to try to win. Um, So, yeah, if you haven't uh, heard that whole podcast yet, I really recommend that, that you go back and check it out on A People's History of Australia. So the fact that the truck drivers had had little to do with the women previously, uh, that they were all men, that they were mostly white didn't matter at all. They had solidarity with these women. They uh, recognised their collective uh, uh, struggle um, and expressed basic working-class solidarity. From the first day, the strikers were up against a heavy and violent presence of company goons who threatened them with the sack, security guards who were later pulled off by their own union, um, and cops. Bari remembers the police sporadically attacking the picket line with batons, uh, but with their newfound collective strength, uh, this didn't really faze the women. They uh, took off their shoes, the young women rushed to the front and beat back their attackers uh, with their shoes. Yeah, look at these losers. (laughs) Um, Useless. So when the company attempted to bring in scabs under police guard, the women would call out to them in their own languages and more often than not convince the workers uh, to turn around and join the picket line. Uh, And when they did, the picket line would erupt in cheers uh, and celebration, welcoming the newcomers. Eventually this became somewhat of a game, uh, breaking the spirit uh, of the employers. Sometimes as well as celebrating, there would be laughter when the strikers welcomed new picketers. Uh, it turns out that they were getting their friends or themselves marching up as if they were going to go into work just to do like a dramatic turnaround (laughs) to join the strikers. Being an unofficial strike, this was very much organised and led by the rank and file. The picket line was much more lively and engaged than many. This was far from the sort of top-down affair that, that you often see. Um, or unfortunately don't often see enough of, really, Uh, the women knew how to draw their communities into this strike. There was much cultural singing and dancing. Many of the Turkish women would use a high-pitched trill, kind of keep the energy up on the picket line. There were even songs sung in Turkish about cutting out the tongues of the officials. (laughs) We should bring that back. Um, 
The multiple cultures and languages represented on the picket line were a source of strength. The different languages didn't prove to be a barrier, barrier at all. Many of the strikers spoke multiple languages and could translate back and forth. Um, and Bari talks about the fact that they kind of developed their own language and their own hand signals uh, to coordinate the picket line. On the second day of the strike, the women had their self-organisation and strength tested as the union called a mass meeting intended to put an end to the wildcat strike. They bust in workers from factories who were not on strike uh, and they fought to keep the socialists who'd been welcome on the picket line out uh, but brought in the company goons. The leading role played by the Turkish revolutionary organisation, the Victorian Turkish Labourers Association, VTAB, is really important here. The most leading uh, militants on the picket line were Turkish women and a number of them were members of VTAB. They refused to rely on the translator uh, supplied by the union um, and instead Sultan, uh, one of the strikers and a VTAB member, did the translating for them. The union pushed for the strikers to accept the $13.50 being offered by arbitration. The strikers expressed outrage at this position. While the officials attempted to enforce a secret ballot, the women fought to force a vote to be by division of the room. Accountability in a vote has always been an important democratic principle of the workers' movement. Employers uh, try to, to force our, our, our votes to be taken secretly because it's a source of strength for them. Having forced a vote by division, the women won. The strike would continue, and now, because the union had brought workers from other factories in the hopes of shutting things down, the strike had to be made official and spread. So instead of shutting down one strike, uh, the workers had managed to grow their strike. On Wednesday, the union officials were tried on again, with another mass meeting intended to stop the strike. Having been shown up by the strikers the previous day, this time in a sickening display of aggressive class collaboration, they brought in the employers and worked closely with the bosses. The bosses brought busloads of scabs with We Want Work placards and megaphones to ensure that they could be heard over the rather noisy strikers. The goons were given access to the meeting hall again. When men from VTAB tried to fight them, the striking women pulled them aside, get out of the way, we know how to fight, uh, and you know, use those trusty shoes again. The union once more tried to push the arbitration deal, and this time the officials and the supervisors did manage to secure a, a um, secret ballot. That lot of good it did them, though. Um, so during the, the vote, supervisors were standing over the ballot boxes, ripping up the, the ballots. The bosses, stooges, were voting multiple times. So the Cortex women, giving absolutely no fucks for proper meeting procedure or orderly conduct, go on a total rampage, talking to and agitating loudly to all the workers about the need to support the strike. Uh, they managed to nick a couple of the megaphones from the bosses to use them to spread their own message. Um, they, you know, the fights with the goons continued. The bosses, of course, were horrified by these scenes um, and soon realised that the, the strikers were infecting their own workforce and so in a panic they start trying to evacuate uh, the people that they brought with them and you know, shove them onto bus, buses, declaring that the vote a farce. Some of the older women um, in the room did feel a bit confronted and demoralised by this and some of them went and sat outside the young women, on the other hand, really threw themselves into the fray uh, and just continued arguing and fighting, doing what they had to do. You know, taking a leaf out of the bosses' uh, books, they uh, also started voting multiple times. Uh, they would later laughingly defend themselves, saying, 
oh, we were just helping the older women. Uh, by the end of the whole thing, there were 362 votes to go back to work, 365 to stay out, in a meeting of 500. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast. We are halfway through a talk given by Kath Larkin at Marxism 2021 entitled Migrant Women Fight Back, the 1981 Melbourne Cortex Strike. Again, the Cortex strikers had shown up the bosses and the union officials. And what I love about this story is their total disregard for any of the rules. One of the most, like, irritating liberal slogans at the moment is Michelle Obama's when they go, when they go low, we go high. Give me a break! The rules weren't written for any of us. They were written for those at the top. And even when they do break their own rules, they get, it gets covered up for. They get protected by those in power. So a little bit of organised chaos is often exactly what's needed. Can you imagine, though, those smug bosses and union officials, they thought they were so smart. They thought they'd have this stitched up in no time, only to be made to literally flee their own strike-breaking meeting by rank-and-file working-class women. So the strike and the lively picketing continues. And on Friday, the 4th of December, the officials call a negotiating meeting in the factory. Having to send in a small delegation uh, to to this negotiating meeting was the first time since the beginning of the picket that the women started to feel a bit apprehensive. Predictably, the bosses and the union officials stood over them in this arena and it was was accepted that they would take uh, a deal, the arbitration offer of $13.50 with the addition of a a delayed uh, pay rise of $11.50, so eventually equaling the the $25, so not quite on the timeline that they'd wanted, as well as improvements too, but not total abolition of the bonus system and increased break, uh, but no, no end to the timed toilet breaks. So as all strikes inevitably must within the framework of capitalism, this strike ended with a compromise. I have no doubt that had the workers stuck it out a little bit longer, they could have won even more. Nonetheless, these were significant gains and you can't just assess the gains based on uh, what's in the, the bit of paper that's signed at the end of the day. The gains are also reflected in the the transformation uh, that occurred for these women that turned them into self-confident fighters. If you can beat up a cop with your shoes, you're not going to be so easily bullied by these petty supervisors. Bari, after initially being nervous about losing her job on the first day of the strike, goes on to be immensely proud of what they achieved and becomes a regular on picket lines, union protests and peace marches. She tells this great story um, about one day after the strike, she's at work and she manages to like prick her finger, uh, causing injury, and some supervisor is really rude to her, tells her off. Um, so she gets up, marches out, doesn't come back for two days. <laughs> and she says that, that when she came back, the manager was very apologetic and uh, never irritated her again. Um, Bari says, she was a great friend to me after that although this newfound friendliness was a bit unfortunate because apparently the supervisor had really bad breath. (laughs) 
So Sultan, who I mentioned earlier as one of the leading activists in the strike, had basically never done serious public speaking before. And then in the process of this strike, she's up there in mass meetings of 500 or so people, you know, and not just like speaking, but making arguments into, you know, incredibly, around incredibly hostile forces with people who are supposedly your betters, who are meant to know how this runs. Um, I think it's like quite an impressive uh, transformation that, that happens. And I'm sure there's lots of different stories like both of those. Um, and there is just one more, um, I guess, collective uh, example of this. Just a few weeks later, the women managed to win themselves an extra half-day holiday. They collectively decided to finish work early on Christmas Eve and held a party in the factory. And the bosses were just not game uh, to try to stop them. So that went on to be an annual tradition and according to Bari, the workers would pull their money to buy roast chicken and people would bring in uh, dishes from their home. So workers got to share in each other's culture. I think in a workplace where bosses had historically divided workers up and pit them against you know, each other on the basis of ethnicity, this is a pretty significant achievement. Though workers don't benefit from the sorts of divisive ideas like racism and nationalism, they can take up the ideas pushed from above. But in the context of struggle, these ideas are just so patently ridiculous. The strike is effective precisely because everyone is involved, regardless of gender, ethnicity, religion or you know, other perceived differences. Uh, the union, yeah, I mean, there's just, history is just full of people who have just shaped uh, the way that we live our lives that we just never know about, um, and Bari is just one of so many. Um, the union officials at the time were dominated uh, by white men who no doubt had, you know, backwards and paternalistic attitudes about migrant women. I'm sure the organising effort of these women was a huge shock to them. But I think it would be a real mistake to think that the officials' role in this can be entirely or even primarily explained by their gender or their whiteness. Union officials are not workers. They are a separate and distinct social layer. They do not share the interests of the working class, nor do they embody the power that's capable of fighting the bosses. At the time, uh, one of the main arguments of union officials uh, was to promote the accord. The accord promised union officials a seat at the table uh, as well as false promises of better welfare and social support uh, for workers in return for industrial peace. One of the arguments used to promote this rotten class collaborationist policy was to argue that while in big industry of skilled white male workers there was a possibility to use your industrial might, this left out those in less well-organised workplaces, particularly those dominated by women, the supposedly unskilled and migrants. So instead, the best organised sections of the working class should supposedly sacrifice uh, for the betterment of all. What a lie. After the accord is brought in in 1983, actually workers' welfare and living standards fell at the same time that productivity and profits for the bosses rose. While the unions, with some notable honourable exceptions, collaborated with the government and employers to destroy solidarity and rank-and-file industrial power. For working class, it was sacrifice after sacrifice to ensure the survival of capitalism. The Financial Review, so no friends of ours, this is the boss's journal, summed up the results in 1989. Under the accord, the Australian Council of Trade Unions has deliberately facilitated the biggest redistribution of national income from wages to profits. 
The women of the Cortex factory, of course, show how crap this whole thing was. They show that far from being left out in the cold by better organised sections of the working class, uh, they, in fact, were inspired by them. The very fact that unions like the car workers, the transport workers, the stormen and packers uh, had won pay rises of $25 was exactly what inspired them to demand the same and to walk out and fight for it. You know, a lot of them had relatives, partners and others who'd been involved in other strikes. The... You know, when people see struggle, it can be infectious. It gives people a reason to fight back and hope that it's possible. And we see repeats of this same dead-end strategy come up time and time again, this idea that we should sacrifice, that there's somehow something noble, that we're going to somehow bring uh, people up just by giving in to the bosses. Last year, Socialist Alternative members were involved in a national rank-and-file rebellion against the NTU officials, the union that represents university workers. It's a very similar argument uh, that, that workers should accept pay cuts, uh, that everyone should just like, have their wages lowered, and that somehow this would protect jobs, protect casuals, uh, and, of course, even the employers said, yeah, no, it won't. Um, Okay, so the dastardly role played by the union officials left, I think, a real space uh, for an alternative political leadership and VTAB were able to step into that. They were able to provide that alternative. As radical communists, VTAB understood the need for workers themselves to lead the struggle and rather than look to make compromises with the bosses, workers had the power to bring Cortex to its knees and they knew that. Their their integration into the working-class Turkish community put them in an ideal position uh, to relate to migrant workers. And it wasn't just a question of industrial tactics. They had radical politics. They understood that sexism was not a question of just bad attitudes or a battle between men versus women. They understood that it was a class question. They held community events uh, that included these really didactic plays uh, which were aimed um, at kind of educating uh, workers about the way that sexism is used to divide the working class and, you know, the importance of men, working class men fighting sexism, uh, you know, by, for instance, doing things like helping out uh, at home to allow women to participate fully in the struggle. And Bari remembers that. She remembers the role of, that men played um, doing a lot of that kind of helping out work at home, which wouldn't have been um, as common uh, back then. So it's, again, a real like, indication of the way that uh, struggle can change people. The international socialists also play a supporting role during this strike, doing things like handing out leaflets uh, that had been developed by the strikers, producing placards that had the workers' main demands on them, um, and distributing the the newspaper, The Battler, which carried significant uh, socialist and industrial political reporting uh, from the time. Uh, And our very own Mick, who I think is here, um, managed to get himself a black eye uh, at that picket line. Um, (laughs) And as I mentioned earlier, it's Sandra's work that has ensured that the lessons uh, from this history have been recorded, uh, that we can you know, learn uh, from this strike, uh, which you know, is, is part of what we do. You know, Leon Trotsky uh, made the argument that a socialist party needs to be the memory of the working class. Um, so I want to play another clip uh, from that podcast where Sandra talks briefly about the role of socialists in the strike but also the impact that the strike had on her because I think it's important to note that Marx and Marxists uh, learnt about the incredible power uh, that could transform society uh, from the workers themselves. Because it was one of the yeah. first big things 
I was involved in. I'd been at pickets and all kinds of things, and I'd been visiting workplaces for the anti-Iranian mining movement. But I, um, this just really touched my heart at the time. Yeah. And uh, I loved all the women, and they taught me so much that strengthened my resolve to be a socialist. Now, hopefully, it strengthened your resolve to be a socialist as well, or convinced you that you maybe you should. Um, so next time uh, that you hear some NGO type talk about sweatshop workers as these poor passive victims, I want you to know that these workers, uh, garment workers, largely women, children, um, often migrants, uh, have been some of the most incredible fighters for a better world. Um, and some of them are uh, up on the screen there, but there's a lot more. Um, Andrew Tillett Sachs, a labour organiser based in Myanmar, has argued that the sight of industrial workers, largely young women garment workers, seem to have deeply inspired the general public, broken down some of the fear and catalyzed the massive protests and general strike we are seeing now. And even far from the kind of revolutionary example of Myanmar that we're seeing now, the strikes like the one at Cortex provide us with living proof of the power that workers have, the transformative nature of class struggle. The strike shows us too that it's important uh, to build an alternative political leadership in the workers' movement, one which truly looks to the power of the working class themselves, which I guess is just one of the reasons uh, that we ask you, if you haven't already, to join us in the project of building that sort of an organisation. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. Yeah, fantastic. You're back with uh, Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast. That was a mighty talk, wasn't it? Absolutely. And um, if I can only offer one more reflection, I'm, I'm very thankful to the uh, Marxism staff for helping me get set up with the tech front of it and, um, you know, lugging cables around for me. They're very generous. But let me tell you, Trotskyists make amazing coffee. I have, <laughs> if there's one thing true about Marxism, that, that $3 coffee was something else. It's absolutely remarkable. So yeah, fun day out. And um, you'll probably hear more from um, my recordings at Marxism uh, coming up through the week, which will be rather nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Now we're going to play a track. Tell, yeah. tell us a little bit about the track. Absolutely. So right now, um, well, uh, for context, I live in St Kilda. Um, and right now we've got all these posters plastered around the place for the St Kilda Blues Festival. And um, one of the uh, blues groups that I had a particular sort of eyeball for was the Blues Preachers. And um, this is their lovely track entitled Payday. Get away, get away, 
uncle I stole some ham and egg I'm gonna keep my skillet greasy if I can If I can If I can I'm gonna keep my skillet greasy if I can You know what happened to me? Now the hounds are on my track I got my knapsack on my back Gonna make it to my shanty for a day, for a day, for a day. I'm gonna make it to my shanty for a day. Now I've done all I can do and can't get along with you. I'm gonna take you to your mama. say no to the cashless debit card campaign Australia and the first two issues that we'll speak about one is how the cashless debit card impacts women in particular and also later in the program we'll talk about the housing crisis due to recent budgetary cuts and cutbacks of JobKeeper and the cashless debit card. We've spoken in the past about a lot of the issues that single parents face with kids on the cashless welfare car yeah. because a lot of the activities and events with kids might require some cash or they might be at sports ovals where there's not the sophisticated type of FPOS that organisations have to sign up to to be eligible for accepting yeah. the cashless welfare card. So it's a very vulnerable subgroup. And are there any oh. more stories that you're hearing from women? With all the justice for women and all that sort of thing, I think, again, we're seeing poorer women being excluded from that conversation, the impact that the card's doing. So those that are on the cashless debit card aren't being represented, in my opinion. I haven't seen anybody really standing up for those people. 
our group, the No Couches Debit Card Australia, and all our supporters are all, all understanding of that issue. I'm talking about outside. We saw these big women's marches. We saw these big people talking about the issues surrounding abuse with women. No mention of the financial abuse and the psychological abuse that people are being put through on the cashless debit card. And the minute you stand up and say that it's primarily impacting more women, you get the voice from the guys going, but what about us guys? You know what I mean? It's like no one's forgetting the guys, but it is impacting more on women and children. Rent issues again, as usual, that's not uncommon. A lot of people are afraid to come out and speak or they've just resigned themselves to the fact they don't understand that they do have the power to speak out, but a lot of people just feel very defeated by this government. The main thing that we've got happening is housing prices. There's nowhere to go. And I've just seen this morning in Kalanara that they're getting a bit worried now because the housing crisis is going to start there. And people are kicking families out of homes that are paying $400 a week rent so that they can re-advertise them for $500 a week rent. We've found people on the cashless debit card have enough of a hard time hanging on to a rental because of the breaches when they're late. This is now a new barrier to getting housings. Everybody I've spoke to that's been evicted because of the Inducard has ended up moving interstate to a place where nobody knows what the card is and they can figure it out from there because they can't get housing in their card region because all the landlords are turning around and saying no. They won't accept the card. What are some of the details you're hearing about the housing crisis? Across the whole country. But the card regions, the people on the card, right, have it harder in maintaining a good credit rating with their housing because of the, the constant resets, declines on their rental payments, or if they're living in a periodic or third-party rental, they can't access their money to pay rent. Because we've had this up here for two years, we've actually got a couple of real estates who just flat out will not accept people on the Inducard. I think the government needs to step in and do something about the private landlords kicking people out that have been in the houses for years so they can put the rent up 60 100 $130 a week. I've even seen some people complaining that their house has gone from 400 a week to 700 a week. It's getting out of hand. It really is. Nobody's pulling people up about it. We need rental caps. You know, we need some control over what rents can be charged because it's just putting good people on the streets for no reason now. We don't have the housing services to cope and... It was revealed in Senate estimates, I believe, that they'd be cutting a further $53 million a year out of the emergency housing funds. This is the federal government, the money that they give to the states. And then they blame the states and say, housing's a state issue, but they're cutting the funding to the states for housing. It's, it's, it's a big crisis. It's just building and building, isn't it? Yeah. You've got the end of JobKeeper, the cutoff of job seeker and the COVID supplement, end of the moratorium on rents, the end of the moratorium on mortgages, and you've got 1.6 million people out of work. It could end up with another 100 to 250,000 being forced out of work. God knows how many small businesses closing down. With the end of JobKeeper? Yeah. Yep. Just in Bundaberg alone, in the Hinkler region, another 2,500 people will lose their jobs. 
this government is responsible for is deliberate because they're crashing this economy from the bottom up. And the only people who are going to be making anything out of the banks might be able to cash in on the foreclosures, right? You've got some speculatory rental people ramping up the rents and yet women and children and families are supposed to sleep in their carts or try and find exorbitant costs for hotels and motel rooms. Bear in mind, if you're on a cashless debit card in Sedona, you can't stay anywhere. You can't use the card for hotel or motel accommodation. Homelessness and the housing crisis is a story that's happening as we speak and it's increasing rapidly because of all these things that we've spoken about today, such as the government cutting you know, 53 million in mm-hmm. budget for the states, plus the job keeper ending, plus rents going up with people moving from the cities to the rural areas through the pandemic and landlords exploiting that to put up rents and to put out people on, on low income. And it's, it's horrible to say, it's, it's a perfect storm for perfect homelessness. Storm. Yeah. Yep, and it's the perfect storm to asset strip people that 12 months ago might have had good jobs and a mortgage. Now those people learn what it's like for the others that have come before that have stuck on payments where you lose everything you've worked for. Okay, especially the older generation. Remember a lot of these people are over 50. So they've got their houses on the line, everything they've ever worked for, sell off everything you've worked for, try and hang on to your home. And then if you can't, you lose your home, where are you going to rent? Because there's no emergency housing. The shelters are full. Abbott government cut so much out of emergency shelters in this first, what was it, 2015 budget. You know, they shut down so many domestic violence services, shelters, homeless shelters, and gutted the charity sector. And then to deliberately keep people on severely below the poverty line and expect the charities to pick up the tab. There's no excuse for it. The mental health issues, the stress, the suicides that come from it. And meanwhile, we're going to pile all our money into making missiles. We can spend a billion dollars on making missiles for war, but we can't fund our homeless. We can't give people a livable rate of payments to be able to live on, to pay rent, buy food and have shelter. We're following America and that's just not right. Which is a nation that has a very high rate of homelessness. This is a public service announcement. And number two. You have the right to food money. Providing a cause. You don't mind a little investigation. Humiliation.
but he stressed the point, but not one of them has anything to do with the government or me. Uh, but, but aren't you responsible? Certainly, and we are being responsible, very responsible. But we can't responsibly be blamed for three million reasons, unlike the state governments. Uh, so the state governments are responsible for the rate not being fab, but you're not responsible. Uh, given the choice, them or us, uh, yes. But the good news, he said, was that the New Zealand bubble was floating into the air along with passengers both ways. And of course, Scummer, you have a nostalgic interest at both ends, having been big supremo of both countries' tourist authorities at some stage in your illustrious career. Yes, yes, I was the tourism supremo before I became big supremo and stuffed them both up. Well, stuffed all three up. Where'd that come from? Where the bloody hell did that come from? Imagine the analysis, if it could be called analysis, in some managerial agency. He stuffed up their tourism authority. He stuffed up our tourism authority. He's clearly incompetent apart from talking crap. So, so where could we find a suitable place for him? Yes, difficult one, but, well, Prime Minister springs to mind. Question. When is an economy we are told is growing at 4.5% and apparently going well simultaneously in a state of disaster? Answer, when workers, lazy avaricious workers, want a pay rise. Despite claims that the economy is recovering so well and faster than anyone would have thought, they tell us that, caring employers have been forced to come out strongly against any wage rise in this year's minimum lowest of the low-paid hearing. Indeed, caring employers have called for a wage freeze. After all, workers hit caring employers with a crippling one-point-something percent increase last year, although thankfully caring employers didn't have to pay the one-point-something until this February. Note decision mid-year, but no actual money in the pockets of the lowest of low paid until February, prompting our old mate, the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group's Innes will cost the workers to gasp. It would be extremely unfair to require them to pay another increase on July 1. And we know Innes is nothing if not all for fairness. But a bit confusing, though, for we mere ignoramuses, because after the government boasted a projected 4.5% growth and the economy could now roll along without JobKeeper, it put in a submission to the Fair Work True Blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it panel, saying the very opposite, opposing an increase in the minimum wage when the economy is in a recession or a prolonged slowdown, given the continuing uncertain global and domestic economic outlook, higher labour costs during this challenging period could present a major constraint to small business recovery and may dampen employment in the sector. There, that sums it up. All they care about is employment. Lazy avaricious, ingrate lazy avaricious workers having a job. And obviously from their submission and Innes' submission, one person's wage rise is another person's job. Like one shareholder's huge dividend is another... No, no, that's not a good example. Uh, you complain about slow wages growth in us, we put to it us. So why aren't you supporting a wage rise for the lowest of low paid? 
uh, because the evil unions won't agree to caring business class relations sensible changes which would provide employment and higher wages. For instance, they even opposed our patriotic attempt to get rid of the better off overall test. We can't have higher wages if we're prevented from making workers worse off overall. Uh, that seems to be a contradiction in us. Not from where I'm standing. Their sincerity shines through when every proposal they make to make caring business class relations so much better is to achieve better jobs and higher wages. So caring. Reflecting their frustration, Deliver Poo announced it would have to reduce its workforce if forced to pay them, pay gig workers little crippling benefits like minimal pay, sick leave, holiday pay. Uh, your workforce, we asked spokesperson Andy Ripoff. Uh, yes, and these threats after we've done so much to provide work during COVID. Uh, so they're your workforce, your workers. Um, no, no, they are independent contractors who work for you, who offered to be contracted by us. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being Uzi said he would move to a crackdown on insecure work. Is there self-interest here? No, no, silly thought. I respectfully disagree. Andy Ripoff disagreed that the opportunities Deliveroo provides to riders are insecure or precarious. Not insecure or precarious? No, more flexible. Well, caring employers are always telling us workers would be so much better off if caring business class relations laws were more flexible. So, well done to Liverpool. Oh, and by the by, huge, huge, filthy, rich Goldman Sachs of wealth snapped up 135.4 million, real figure, in Deliverpool's shares on the London Stock Exchange last week. So there's no way poor old Deliverpool could possibly provide wages and conditions for its workers, uh, sorry, its workforce contractors. The other end of the scale, to show how dangerous those evil unions are, the bloody ACTU shows it's as ignorant as we are, well, I won't assume, as ignorant as I am, when it comes to the delicate flower that is the economy. If wages don't increase, it, it threatens the entire recovery, Secretary Sally McManus showed she had no idea, unlike Innes and the sundry chambers of profits and the government. Money in the hands of working people is what will create sustainable economic growth, not bigger profits for big business. Anyone to poor innocent scummo and Andy Ripoff are so frustrated. There's optimism, and there's optimism, and then there's one of True Blue Aussie's most filthy rich of the filthy rich aged care and health entrepreneurs, bloke called Moron, is catering for his co-filthy rich with an opulent new development, an aged care facility residences with French parquetry floors, tiles from Spain, Victorian marble, marble fireplaces, but all mod cons and modern technology and pensioners queuing up at the bank door waiting for it to open on pension day can get into this luxury for a mere four million, plus naturally a two thousand a month service fee, including a nurse and 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 a laundry. Not not sure why that's extra, but here's the optimism bit: the four million gets you a ninety nine year lease in an aged care facility. As optimism goes, that has to be right up there. 
While on the filthy rich, the death of Carla Zampetti shows yet again that if you want the public purse to pick up the -the over-the-top costs of your funeral, become very, very filthy rich. Although in fairness to Carla, she declared her role in life was to make women feel comfortable and relaxed. And the way women feel comfortable and relaxed is by wearing my label. They feel so free. Uh, Your label, which isn't so free. Uh, That's the good bit. It makes me feel comfortable and relaxed. Of course, the poor can get a state funeral. It's called a pauper's grave. But if some people are feeling just a little pessimistic, unlike those optimists grabbing those 99-year leases on aged care accommodation, bit pessimistic about climate change, if there is such a thing, it's not all bad news. Smart investor column in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review listed climate change as a great opportunity for investors. Benefit from climate change opportunities, it advises. It mentioned, for instance, one fund which invests in about 100 global companies that make at least half of their revenue from products and services that reduce or avoid carbon emissions. Very good. But then it doesn't say where they get the other half of their revenue from, but we can assume that's what they mean by carbon offsets, carbon neutral. Very useful things, carbon offsets. They allow the big polluters to keep big polluting to their heart's content by planting a few trees in some other country, whereas we simple souls might have thought, naively, the best way to stop polluting would be simply to stop polluting. So isn't it encouraging to see that those who know all about how the delicate flower works are able to make a little killing out of climate change if there is, rather than just leave the planet to be killed by climate change if there is. Notice former big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull was appointed and then unappointed to head a New South Wales body on clean energy because he opposed mining, exporting and burning coal. For balance, the federal government has appointed a former supremo of fossil origin energy to head and, quote, overhaul the climate change authority, which should work wonders for the climate change bit, if there is. Finally, in the interesting timing department, after the Sex Discrimination Commissioner's respected work report had been gathering dust for a year or so, the government announced it will adopt all recommendations, in fact, or it said, in principle. We support that in principle, it will say. Uh, And what action will you take? We will support that in principle. Ah, such principles. Hope no one thinks gathering dust for a year is some sort of reflection on the government. Good morning. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. 
been 30 years since the Royal Commission released its final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Things have actually got worse and there's still no justice. Come along to the National Day of Action. Stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Black Lives Matter. Saturday the 10th of April, 1pm on the steps of Parliament House, Melbourne. Join us in the streets to demand justice and self-determination. See you there. Yeah, you're back on Solidarity Breakfast for 3CR with Annie and myself, Jordan. And on the phone, we got Don. How are you doing? Uh, good, Jordan. Thank you very much. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Annie's here as well, of course. <laughs> yeah. G'day, Annie. G'day, Don. Uh, we're here to talk to you about the national wages case that's coming up and uh, a, a very important anchor uh, in amongst all the... Uh, eddies of water, of uh, political maelstroms around uh, uh, payments to the lowest paid workers and people uh, with experiencing suppressed wage levels. It certainly is. And um, the uh, annual wage review um, is probably um, the single most important uh, event and decision that determines the standard of living for all low-income workers and arguably for workers who are above the award-level wages to which it also applies. And I was really delighted to hear the wonderful Kevin Healy um, talking about it and quite correctly satirising the submissions that have been put in by the Australian Industry Group through their main spokesperson, Innes Willox. And um, uh, I think he's... I hope he continues to cover uh, what's going on with the annual wage review because what we are facing is the prospect of a decision that further drives down uh, low-income wages relative to median rates of pay and so on. Well, it seems Um, to me that uh, those groups would be quite happy to have... Uh, official slavery, uh, because uh, it's quite clear, as we've established, uh, Australian um, billionaires have done very well out of COVID. And this idea that uh, the lowest paid workers should be in insecure work and uh, have, uh, uh, you know, and uh, have wages, uh, a return of 1% or something ridiculous uh, in the present climate. If I could take a leaf out of um, uh, Kevin's approach, um, the the economics of this are really simple. Uh, A massive increase in executive salaries, a massive increase in corporate profits does not cause any problems at all uh, in regards to increasing unemployment. However, a minuscule increase in wages for the lower paid uh, wrecks the possibility of, uh, of uh, secure employment, in fact, in fact, creates unemployment. That is the weird economics that underpins the employer and some other submissions uh, to the annual wage review. 
Now, I, I think maybe it'd be worthwhile going back a step or two. Firstly, uh, the reason why it's so important is that something like 2.3 million workers are directly affected by this decision. Their standard of living is directly affected by this decision, and probably about 60% of them are women. And, of course, uh, it's not just them. It's their dependents. Mm. Uh, it's their dependents, exactly. And also, the decision has flow-on effects to people who are not uh, on the annual, the national minimum wage or on the specific award rates that apply. So there, are, it's not as though this decision is solely about the situation for uh, 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 minimum wage workers or... Uh, award rate workers. It has flow-on effects to others, including others who are in a position, uh, the declining numbers, to, uh, to pursue an enterprise agreement within the framework of broken rules that are stacked against workers in that area. What, what, Don, uh, are you saying that it has a flow-on effect on the well-being of society in general? Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it, it is... Uh, I think the economics of it would be something we need to return to, but we ought to get some basic facts out there for your listeners so that they can work with that. Now, most of the material that I'm relying upon, and I guess, I suppose, um, our mate Kevin would also be turning to, is at the Fair Work Commission website, you can get all everything that I'm talking about in much greater detail. And uh, once upon a time, union members uh, used... Uh, the traditional newspapers to get this sort of information, uh, or they relied upon their union journals. And I, I suspect that, um, well, the traditional newspapers are totally misleading about these things today and that can't be relied upon. Um, and union journals, I think, uh, deal with the annual uh, wage review uh, really somewhat inadequately, really, and that does need to change. Last year... Last year, the increase in adverted commas uh, that was provided was, of course, it was the decision that was taken last year by the Fair Work Commission was based, as is usual, upon submissions from employers and unions and others. And they granted, because of the pandemic, a 1.75% increase. The ACTU claimed 4% and the employers sought zero. So the employers sought zero workers in the context of massive hardship in any case. The one what, what, business hardship? Are you saying business hardship? Uh, well, there were some businesses, of course, that were going through hardship, but compare that with the situation for the workforce. Mm. There's mm. just no comparison. The 1.75% uh, applied to one group of workers from the 1st of July last year, as is normally the case. But a second group did not get that increase by decision of the Fair Work Commission because of arguments about the pandemic's economic impacts until the 1st of November. So their living standards, while many of them were still working and delivering goods and services, some of which were critical to the ongoing the lower operation of the economy, they suffered a pay decline, relatively. And then a third group, those who were most seriously affected, so you've got to imagine the workforce who were still delivering the goods 
in these industries, and this is accommodation and food, uh, arts and recreation, aviation and retail, they didn't get their increase until the 1st of February. Mm. So it was a staggered increase of uh, 1.75% uh, that overall helps to drive down living standards. So, the, oh no, please continue. Go, go for it. Go for it, please. Yeah. So uh, this year's this year's annual wage review comes in the context of um, some form of recovery, which is going to be a lot of debate. And so far, we have the first stage of submissions. This year, there will be five rounds of submissions. And so we just have the first stage. And 18 organisations have put in submissions. Uh, three that have not, that are significant, that have not said anything yet, are the ALP, the Greens and the Reserve Bank. We don't know mm. what their position is at this start. We do know the Reserve Bank's position on wages. Whether they have the gumption to put in a submission uh, that reflects their recommendations that wages be able to be increased above 3% for a sustainable period, uh, that remains to be seen. My hunch is that they will be as weak as dishwater and won't back up with a submission what they otherwise say in public. Just just the, on just on those submissions, actually, um, one one thing that was jumping out to me was that the uh, Restaurant and Catering Australia, an industry body, um, urged the the government uh, any increase should not occur until at least February twenty twenty two. Further to that, there was also the National Retail Association echoing calls uh, requesting for any increases to be deferred until November of this year. Um, this is kind of interesting in context when you consider that a lot of business groups are also lobbying for an increase to JobSeeker, and um, you, you can look at organisations like Life for this. Is rises for wages being outsourced to the government? Through um, JobSeeker, I should say. No, I don't believe so. Um, JobSeeker is all about Unemployment. I wouldn't put it like that. I don't think it's not being outsourced. The, right. I, I see the, it as as more of a um, a spending power of the minimum wage worker, in comparison. Oh, uh, are you are you saying that? Uh, but you see, when you suppress wages, and you suppress job seeker, mm. that means that there's a the compar a comparison is created, mm. and so people can continue to be on tiny wages. Uh, because job seeker is comparatively smaller still. So th- that, that, that's that's inflation, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's deflating the the economy comparatively, yeah. That that would be right, Don. Right. The poverty levels on uh, that are now apply in regard to job seeker, and the downward pressure on the industrial wage. So you, what you've got is downward pressure on the social wage, which is the unemployment benefit, the pension disabled pensions, youth allowance, those sorts of things. Um, the downward pressure on both the industrial and the social wage means that the overall rate of exploitation across the whole society increases. And that means that, of course, the only beneficiaries take the form of profits. Whether those profits are increasing to the levels relative to investment that employers can get is a different question. 
Now, the, the, that, the, that's something we can explore another time. Yeah, there's also a muddying, muddying of the waters in regards to business and their representation because you have a small business and you have big business. They're not the same. Yes, and small business divides into two groups of salt. There are uh, 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 owner-managers owner or owner-workers in a business who take a profit and pay themselves some wages at the same time. And then there's others, other small businesses where they um, they don't take wages themselves because they don't do any work and um, although they might pretend to do that, but they take the profit only. So... Um, yes, yeah, so there are, and and there are impacts there, and those most of those small businesses are in reality dependent upon what workers and people who are dependent on their social wage have in their pocket to spend. So that their overall economic stake is determined significantly by the spending power provided by the industrial wage. If there's downward pressure on that, they've got a problem. Uh, that's lost on their own industry association, by the way, but that's another point. Mm. I think the, um, I'm thankful to you, um, uh, Jordan, because you've sort of picked up on a couple of submissions that I haven't read yet and that they're calling for uh, uh, um, staggered in, uh, increases or de deferred increases. I hadn't picked that up in those submissions. Mm. It's worth having a look at the what the submissions are this year at this stage. The Australian Council of Trade Unions, on behalf of all workers, but especially those who are on the national minimum wage, nearly 200,000 people, and we're not talking here about the others who are victims of wage theft and, and are being paid uh, below the national minimum wage. We don't know exactly how many people are in that category. Um, uh, their submission is for 3.5% a 3.5% increase. Remember, they asked for 4% last year. Um, the overall policy intention, the strategic intention of the ACTU is to win an increase to 60% of the full-time median wage. At the moment, that's it's about arguably about 52.5%. Um, so that 3.5% submission from the ACTU, they say, should be applied to all minimum rates, and in regards to the national minimum wage, that would increase then from $19.84 an hour to $20.53, and that's an increase to the value of $26.38 per week. Yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, now that I was going to exactly there. ask so you. So that's a very, that's a, that's actually a very modest submission from yeah. the ACQ. Um, they, I think it's interesting for your listeners to really start, if you want to be fair dinkum about this, it's worth reading the submissions. And they're all available at the Fair Work Commission uh, website. You just go to the website, you go to the page that's called Minimum Wages and Conditions, and then Annual Wage Reviews, and then the 2021 webpage, and that will give you all the detail. Now, Don, um, uh, there's a whole process, a rigmarole, five... Uh, five five um, uh, bouts in this uh, fight. Uh, when do they actually, uh, when do you expect them to actually uh, make their decision? Well, they really do have to finalise their decision early to mid-June because the law currently requires that 
the their decision must be applied in the first pay period after July the 1st. So it's about mid-June they will set a date to announce their decision. Hmm. And between now and then, there will be four more opportunities for submissions to be put in. One on the 23rd of April, another on the 14th of May, another on the 4th of June and another on the 8th of June, all related to various uh, dates in the economic uh, data reporting cycle. That has implications for the strategy. In my view, this ought to be a big deal in every May Day action that's happening this year. May Day is traditionally about the most important working class demands uh, over three or four different themes including, of course, the control of the working hours and the control of working time, which is how it originated, of course, including peace and international solidarity, concepts of socialism. But this is one of, this is one of the most basic demands that, in which there has not been much class struggle. And so May Day becomes an important moment in the Australian year where... Uh, education and agitation work ought to be taking place again around the uh, annual wage uh, around the annual wage review I'll just say something about the employer submissions uh, and uh, because it dovetails also with the New South Wales government submission and the federal government submission they all of them decline to name an amount they are as weak as dishwater and as hypocritical as you could imagine. They, at this stage, are hedging their bets on how much they are willing to announce. Whereas last year, they were very explicit, all calling for zero. Yeah, the Australian yeah. industry group, which is the most effective, and Kevin's right on the money in focusing on the Australian industry group, uh, they have used the phrase the Commission should take a particularly cautious approach. Lo and behold, the Federal Government submission says we recommend a particular, a cautious approach. Oh, you think they had afternoon tea with each other? (laughs) Maybe they hire the same secretary. (laughs) Well, you've got... There's no coincidence. Of course, they've been talking to each other to work out a commonality in their approach. This is class warfare we're talking about. And the major, uh, the major state government in the Australian economy, of course, is the relative, uh, is, well, it's still marginally the New South Wales government, also uses the same phrase, continue to take a cautious approach. You know, you know, Don, the most disturbing thing about this is that um, given that uh, there's a whole uh, balance that needs to be uh, achieved in order to have a, um, a working economy, and we don't just mean for business, we mean for the whole of society, uh, having a commission which is supposed to be able to hold more, one, more than one thought in its head at the same time 
uh, quite clearly uh, mean, means that uh, it's supposed to be dealing with the uh, future good of this Australia, what's called Australia. Um, but when they make decisions that are continually weighted towards uh, uh, the big end of town, you have to wonder if the ship's not going to go um, to founder on a sandbar at some point. Hmm. Well, yes, and the classic way of putting you, making your point, is to say that it will heighten contradictions in the society. Um, the the interesting thing about this thing with the Commission is uh, and the ACTU is doing a little bit more educate, basic union education work this time around. I have no idea what their strategy is beyond that, except to be seen to be pursuing the claim and arguing it effectively in the submissions process. Remember, the broken rules of the whole process are stacked against workers. Um, there is statutory prevention which can be defied if we choose to, but there is statutory prevention of organising and industrial action to back up the claim for 3.5%. But the ACTU's education has actually got some... You know, it's good that they're doing it. Um, but they do use this weird... I don't know, it's nonsense, actually. They use this phrase in talking about the Fair Work Commission the independent workplace umpire. Now, that is a nonsense. The Fair Work Commission and its predecessors have never been an independent workplace <laughs> umpire. Absolutely. Well, never. you always well have said. to work out who pays the, their, their salary, really, yeah. don't you? <laughs> well, that's, uh, you, can, you can look at it in all sorts of ways, but there's all sorts of, all sorts of historical as well as contemporary evidence that shows that's not the case. Now, it is that is the view of right-wing unions. It was back in the 30s and the, and the 50s especially, uh, particularly the right-wing Catholic unions, Catholic-led unions who talked yeah. about it like that. And that's the view, I think, of the shop assistance unions still today. Um, so I think, you know, the ACQ muddies its position, unfortunately, but it is it should be supported... And people should look at its basic union education available at its webpage uh, uh, about the annual wage review. This is a small, necessary step forward. The big question for your listeners, what is your union saying and doing about the annual wage review, the single most important decision each year about what living standards are going to be for lower-paid workers? The answer about what they're saying and doing could be found at their Facebook pages or at their union web pages or on their Twitter account, but it also might be found in real-life meetings as they begin to happen. <laughs> mm. Yeah, face-to-face. -face. You could actually ask them. Yeah. yeah. Give them a call not as doing, well. Yeah, yeah. give them a call. unions have not latched on, and some unions will not latch on because they're addicted to enterprise bargaining as the solution to... Um, uh, winning wage increases, even though it's a failure overall. Every time we have a win, the addiction strengthens. Um, if they're not saying anything about the annual wage review and its potential and the potential for building a fair income campaign through May in particular, then lead from below. 
We have to leave it there, Don. We have to leave it there. We have to leave it there. Thank you very much for that advice. Lovely to be back with you. See you in the future, Don. Bye. See ya. Yeah, it is. It's the end of the road for the show today. Absolutely. I think uh, coming into May Day as well, that's a particularly sort of powerful statement. Um, shall we go out with some equally strong unionist stuff, I suppose? Let's, in fact, we'll go, uh, let's, let's try with the Lurkers. They had this absolutely lovely piece called Who's Got a Padlock and Chain? And it's uh, they're an Australian the metro, band. Mom. Enjoy. See you next week. Down at the metro mine Who's gonna lie on that hard rail line Stop Peabody's coal digging crime Coal mining takes your life away It's a dead end job I say Get dust on your lung Get a coal blackened tongue And a dead planet back with your pay Who's got a padlock and chain? Who's got a padlock and chain? Locking on tight to that coal train tonight. Tell me who's got a padlock and chain? For wool and gone people do you dread? Yes, wool and gone people do you dread? That sound up on the hill, yes, that's Peabody's drill. Cracking through your drinking river bed. Yes, Peabod is digging up that coal. The Peabod is digging up that coal. Gonna lie down on the track and make for all the coal back. Cause nobody should be digging up coal. Who's got a padlock and chain? Tell me now. Who's got a padlock and chain? Well, tell me now. Locking on tight to that coal train tonight. Tell me who's, who's got, got a padlock and chain? I'll name you their leader in crime He's CEO with Peabody Mines Mr Gregory H. Boyce He's their leader of choice For his greed will make him pay in time We'll be standing in court one day We'll be standing in court one fine day We'll hear the judge's voice say Mr G. H. Boyce for your crimes You now must pay Tell me who's got a padlock and chain. Well, tell me who's got a padlock and chain. Well, tell me now. Locking on tight to that coal train tonight. Tell me who's, who's got, got a padlock and chain. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.